Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. And this isn't hubris for us as, as a congregation, but I was just like, I feel like Jesus is pleased. Um, I feel like Jesus is pleased. Um, I was reflecting as Callie just came up and, and, and saved Kim from not knowing what to play next on the piano. I don't know if any of you saw that, but somehow there was a whisk of air and Kim's music flew behind uh, the little railing there or whatnot. She kept going, and I thought, that's Kim, she'll, she'll know what to do. But Callie came up here and, you know, got the piece of paper and gave it back to her. She's playing with one hand, taking the paper with the other. I thought it was pretty impressive, by the way. Uh, what, you still get lunch, yes. Um, who's buying Kim's steak? Anybody? Going once, twice. Um, but, uh, and then Caleb uh, is the one who fixed all this AV stuff, you know, back there. Thanks, man. Good job. Um, but, you know, Pastor Brian's been on, uh, on, on a bit of a leave. He was here this morning. I don't think he's here now. At least he shouldn't be. If he's here, kick him out. He's supposed to be home resting. Um, but he's here. He left. Yeah, that's what I thought. Good job. Brian, if you're listening to my voice now, well done, son. Um, but there's so many of you who've uh, really chipped in um, as, as Brian's been away uh, with concussion and all this kind of stuff. And he's meaning to be back next week. But one thing I've learned about Brian over the last three weeks is, is he likes to overdo things. So, uh, so he's getting better. Uh, so just a little bit about him. He's getting better, uh, but he also kind of overdoes it every once in a while. So we want him to be better for the long haul, not just the short haul. Um, so thank you for all of you who are chipping in and, and making those, those things happen. But uh, the, the word liturgy means the work of the people, uh, and, and liturgy is often used in, in referring to the worship of the church. And Y'all, it's just so fun to be a part of the church with you where the work among us is shared together. Um, so thank you, thank you all for everything that you do uh, to contribute to this community. Appreciate it so much. Um, Mark, do you have something you want to share with us on uh, behalf of, I think it's Homes of Hope, right? I think it's Homes of Hope, yeah. Everybody say good morning to Mark. Morning, Mark. Morning, Mark. Uh, actually, it's the broader ministry, Love, Inc., Love in the Name of Christ. Uh, it's a ministry that supports neighbors in need. This is a national ministry, but we have a local chapter here in Lancaster as well. Uh, how do they support neighbors? Uh, it's through church affiliations, where one, they are asking churches to assume some financial responsibility and support toward Love, Inc., but also provide volunteers. Uh, one of their programs is called ElderNet. It supports seniors through a call center. A senior will call in, then Love, Inc. will call registered volunteers to help that senior with transportation or shopping issues or other small chores. Another program is Homes of Hope. Now, this is one that our congregation is very much uh, in support of because the building right across the street, two-story brick building, uh, is a current Homes of Hope. It's the Mannheim Township homes of hope. There are seven school districts that have a, have a homes of hope, and we're one of those. So the, the second floor of that building uh, currently, and in the past now for several years, has housed families who basically find themselves in financial difficulties. And so they, they are brought into a home of hope, and they receive mentoring and financial counseling, uh, very low rent for several months until they're financially back on their feet, uh, and then they move out into an apartment and, and life goes on. One of the things though that we need uh, for this program, again, are volunteers. Uh, we need mentors and we need budget coaches. And I know that there are some mentors and budget coaches in this congregation already, uh, but if this is something that you would 
like to be involved with, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, this month, there will be a mentoring um, training. It's a Zoom training session. And they're asking for current, current mentors or those who have mentored in the past, and also those who are interested in becoming a mentor, please attend this Zoom session. So I'm putting in your mailboxes today a, a sheet that tells you how to register for that, et cetera. Uh, in the future, they will also be having a budget coach training. That probably won't happen until April of next year. Uh, but again, we need mentors and budget coaches to keep this program running so that just a set number of mentors and budget coaches don't have to continually work with the families that come into our program. Because I think we're on our sixth or seventh family, I always forget. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm going to put that in your mailbox. On the other side of that sheet is also uh, information about a, a program at Calvary Church in November. It's a program where Love, Inc. is just asking people to come in to learn about Love, Inc. Um, I also was told that, yes, it will be a fundraiser at that meeting, but you can get information about Love, Inc., what they're doing in the community uh, in Lancaster County. So I'd encourage you to look at that, and if you're interested, you can talk to me if you have questions, or again, go on Love, Inc.'s uh, website and get information there. Thank you very much. All right, couple other announcements. Um, First of all, next Sunday we're, is a missions-focused Sunday, so our global partners, the Bathursts, who serve in Africa in a discipleship kind of ministry there, are going to be with us. Um, so they're going to be with us in two ways. During the Sunday school hour for adults, if you would like to hear more about what they're doing in Africa, uh, we're going to meet in here during the Sunday school hour and they'll be able to share with us here. Uh, there'll be time for Q&A, all that kind of stuff too. Uh, but it'll be a chance for, for you to interact with them. And then during the service time, they'll probably share for three minutes or so. But then your kids, they'll be down with kids ministry and sharing what they do uh, there as well. Following that is going to be a meal, uh, which we encourage you guys to be a part of. There's a QR. I don't know if there's a QR code for that or not. Yep, there is uh, on the back of your bulletins. Uh, so you can sign up for that. We're it's a it's um it's a multicultural potluck. So if you've got a favorite dish from a part of the world, please bring that. Um, and if that part of the world is Lancaster County, feel free to bring ham loaf. That's fine. Um, uh, let's see what other thing. And then the following week on Saturday, the 22nd, there is a work day um, from 8:30 to noon. So we've got a lot of stuff to do. Uh, there's a lot of bulbs of flowers that need planted, and uh, there's a lot of painting, and we're going to do some work at the church house and things too. So um, you can sign up for that as well. Okay, last thing before I dismiss the kids. Caleb, can you pan that camera out so it faces the whole congregation? Can we all stand up? Okay, you have no idea what I'm asking you to do right now, but that's okay. And can you face the camera? Because we're going to do something. Pastor Jane is on vacation this weekend but today she crosses the threshold of a, a particular decade in her life on earth the first number is not a five and it's not a seven but it's a number in between there followed by a zero and so she is not here um, and I've encouraged her to tune in so she's either watching this live or We'll be able to rewind this multiple times in the future today. Uh, so we're going to sing happy birthday to Pastor Jane, okay? Uh, we can just say Jane. You don't need to say Pastor Jane when we get to that part. All Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jane. Happy birthday to you. Yay! All right, kids, you're dismissed to your classes. Everybody else can have a seat. If you have your Bibles this morning and you want to turn, uh, use them and follow along. We'll be in Luke 17 first, and then we'll be... Uh, a couple places in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, so uh, the text this week um, takes further uh, a little bit more what we talked about last week. Um, or maybe a better way of saying it is that uh, 
rather than just thinking of faith in a personal way, it also shapes how we see the world around us. And it might surprise us how faith shapes how we see the world. So I want to go back just a little bit, and, and in the bottom of your bulletin, there's some few, a few highlights from, from last week. But last week, just to review, we looked at this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus says to his disciples, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, then uh, you could say to this mulberry tree, be planted into the sea, and it would obey you. We tried to think of this as a different, uh, in a different way. Instead of Jesus kind of castigating his disciples and saying, you don't even have this much faith, we tried to think of it in a different way. We suggested that uh, Jesus was suggesting to them that they're asking the wrong question altogether. Faith isn't trying, remember this last week, I'm not going to grunt as hard as I did last, it's not trying to have more faith. Um, but faith is doing the ordinary, the day-to-day -day things that God asks of us. Faith is doing them faithfully. So here's a few other things that we said about faith. Faith is not an escape from what is. Like Karl Marx says, uh, faith is the opiate of the masses. That's not the case. Faith is not an escape from what is. But faith is drawing on the beautiful future and the reality of God's goodness and presence into the present where we are. We draw from what we don't see into what we do see. It's drawing the kingdom of God, the beauty of the kingdom of God, into the here and the now. Faith is entering into the reality of what is in front of you, trusting that God is there, welcoming God there, becoming aware that God is there. Faith is responding to the faithfulness of God to us with our own faithfulness to God. So faith is something that is initiated by God. We're responding in faith to God's faithfulness. So it's an act that begins with God that we are responding to. Now today I'd like us to think about this question, where we might think faith is possible. Or maybe we could say it another way. We could make the statement, faith is possible there? Seriously? It's possible even there? That couldn't be faith. Because sometimes faith is a shocking thing. It's shocking where God shows up. And faith is simply, at maybe its most basic form, faith is the recognition of when God shows up among us. And so let's look uh, first at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and then we'll go to Jeremiah again. We used Luke and Jeremiah last week, and we'll do that this week again. Starting in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, weren't everybody, wasn't, wasn't all ten of you cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, to the Samaritan, rise and go, your faith has made you well. So Jesus is traveling from north to south. Uh, Galilee is at the top, and then Samaria, and then Jerusalem, where he's heading to, is, is at the bottom. And so going to Jerusalem, when, when we read in the Gospels that somebody is going to Jerusalem, uh, they're going there because Jerusalem is the center of worship, it's the temple, it's where all the festivals uh, happen to be going. And so, on, going on, uh, on his way then, he encounters ten men with leprosy. So these would be, uh, most of you probably know this, they would be unclean people, they would have to be separated from society, they would have no part of society, and a teacher, a rabbi, or a priest, really the only role of a priest in, in the life of, of a leper would be to confirm uh, that a cleansing has taken place so that they might re-enter society. Otherwise, the role of the priest, the priest would be unclean if they had come in contact with them at all. So they call from a distance, Jesus, have mercy on us. So if you see this rabbi who's been going around healing people, and there's this group of, of ten who's just alongside the road, and you see Jesus coming towards you, 
Maybe it's this last-ditch effort. Jesus, have mercy on us. They know what has happened. Maybe something will happen to them too. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't give them any promises. He just says, go to the priests. Go show yourselves to the priests. And then, as they are going, literally as they are walking out this obedience, however many steps that it takes, it's got to be a bit, right? As they are walking, they're cleansed. They're cleansed. This description, though, is not a description of their faith. This description is a description of the faithfulness of God. Okay? So it's not like these guys have some extraordinary amount of faith, and they think to themselves, oh, well, if I just walk, maybe I'll be healed by the time I get there. That's not on their radar whatsoever. They've lived with this disease. I don't know why they're obedient to Jesus. Nobody says why they're obedient to Jesus, but they obey Jesus. And as they obey Jesus, God is is faithful to them and cleanses them. Faith is only mentioned, though, when one of the ten lepers returns, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and thanking him. Now, you would think that would be everybody's response, right? If you have had some sort of significant disease that has kept you almost ruined and defined your life, and you're healed from this disease, you would think, well, first of all, the healing would be pretty incredible, but I don't, I mean, at what point do you think, oh, my finger's not falling off anymore, this is great. You know, be just shocked by the healing itself taking place as you're walking, you're being made, you're being made whole. But when this man recognizes it, one out of the ten, he turns around and he runs back to Jesus, giving him thanks. And this is what is commended as faith. Not walking, uh, not obeying what Jesus says to do. It's not faith going from wherever Jesus was to, to the temple or to the local priest where the priest was. That's not the faithful part. Faithful part isn't walking to the priest. The faithful part is coming back and giving Jesus credit for what Jesus has done. The, that is commended as faith, recognizing the good as the work and mercy of God. Faith is waking up to the reality that the kingdom of God is present among us. So faith is not so much a work as it is an awakening that God is present and working among us. Faith begins with God. This is what we talked about last week, faith being the the pulling from the future, the way things will be, the fullness of the kingdom of God into the present, into the way things are, seeing with future eyes into the present. This man recognizes that God's, uh, that God's future has broken into his life, into the present. God showed up, and and that's what faith is, is recognizing and having eyes to see when God shows up. You would think that it's pretty evident when God shows up, especially in the lives of, of these lepers. All of them, Jesus is clear, all of them are cleansed, and you would think that 10 out of 10 would recognize that God has showed up among them, but only one of them returns to Jesus. Only one of them has faith. Only one of them connects the dots and recognizes that God has showed up here. This is a sobering reality and a sobering story um, because even when extraordinary things happen, even when God does extraordinary things, things, they go unrecognized. Even when God does extraordinary things, they go unrecognized. And this happens throughout the Gospels, right? Uh, right after the, the feeding of the 5,000, I don't remember the reference of where it is, I just remember the sequence of things, right? Um, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the Pharisees or somebody was like, Jesus, show us a sign. I mean, what more do you want? You got steak to eat all your life, Kim Ernst, you know? Uh, it's just this endless supply. And oh no, show me something else. Um, And so it is possible and it is often, I mean this happens regularly in our lives, does it not? When, When extraordinary or even ordinary things that are extraordinary happen, they simply go unnoticed. As if God's not present 
among us. And, and so this challenges us, I think, because out of the 10, one comes back, the rest, experiencing this extraordinary, don't experience faith. They don't connect this with God. They continue in their status quo, right? They continue walking on in their status quo. They've received a miracle. And I think this is, friends, this is the goodness of God. God gives miracles uh, and, and, and really allows people to miss him, right? They've received a miracle, but they've missed God. And that's not God's fault. God is generous in providing a miracle, but somehow they miss God. So it's not that we sometimes think, oh God, if you would show up in this way in my life, then I would believe. That's, that's actually not a guarantee whatsoever. Right? Just because something extraordinary happens doesn't mean that faith is going to come into the life of somebody. Right? Faith is, is not the miracle itself, but recognizing the source of whatever miracles happen in our lives. And frankly, I feel like the fact that my heart beats without telling it and my body breathes with me, without me telling it, that's fairly miraculous. The miraculous happens to us all the time. The fact that the sun rises and sets, the fact that this earth is orbiting and doesn't just drop to somewhere. I, you know, I'm not a scientist, obviously, right? <laughs> you don't need to laugh like, yeah, you're not. Um, but but there's, there's extraordinary things that happen all the time. This is what we said. This is what G.K. Chesterton said last week. Like, the, extra, the extraordinary is actually in the ordinary, and we just don't have eyes to see it. Faith is being able to see that God is present among us. Right? How much of the world just takes for granted, like these nine lepers, how much of the world just takes for granted, like, oh, the goodness of what is around us? Man, that's just the way things are. And don't recognize the source. That's what faith is, is recognizing the source of these things. The interesting thing here, particularly in application with the Jeremiah passage, is that the one of the ten who respond to Jesus is somebody who shouldn't respond to Jesus. This is a Samaritan. This is somebody who's got their worship life, their belief system, all those kinds of things messed up. Uh, in, in their day and age, what they would refer to Samaritan Jews would refer to Samaritans as half-breeds, uh, a very derogatory name. Uh, this shouldn't happen. Just like uh, on, with um, the good Samaritan, right? That shouldn't happen. This shouldn't be the one who comes back. It should be somebody who's a part of the people of God. And so it's a bit offensive, especially to any Jew who's hearing this story. It's offensive to think that nine out of the ten were Jewish folks who didn't recognize what was going on. The one who did was somebody who should have never got it. And so faith surprises us. The places where take, faith take place surprise us. Maybe sometimes, and, and, and isn't this kind of a hopeful thing though too? Like as people of faith, as you enter the world, right, there might be a moment among a friend or a coworker or some random stranger where you get to witness them connecting these dots that something that has happened in their life is an act of God. And there's this opening of their eyes that sees to a deeper reality. Like, what if we would enter the world that way? With eyes of faith, wanting to see where these two things, where God and people meet. And, and maybe we're the ones then to be able to say, and call that out. And help them see, and to help them understand Help them to see how much bigger the world is and how big God is. So faith is this, this connection of the extraordinary in the ordinary to the eyes, uh, through the eyes of faith to what God gives us. Now, the Samaritan is an unlikely person, but this next passage of Scripture 
I, I, I love the progression of this passage of Scripture and what leads up to it. So we're going to read tw- uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 1, 4 through 7, and then we're going to backtrack a little bit because this is one of the, I think, one of the coolest stories in Scripture. Uh, one of the, um, it, it is a stumping and prophetic story for the American church. Here we go. So this is uh, verses 1 and 4 through 7 in Jeremiah chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that the the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiled whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it's in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, before we get there, um, we got to, I mean, that's a beautiful passage in and of itself, but we've got to get there. And so uh, in order to get there, I'm just going to, I'll give you references. You can read stories. Um, but in 2 Kings 20, there's the story of King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah was a pretty decent king, uh, but he was struck ill at some point in his, his reign where he was about to die. And as he was on his deathbed, quite literally, uh, he rolled over and he was sobbing and sobbing. And he just cries out to God to have mercy. And so the prophet comes to King Hezekiah then and says that uh, to King Hezekiah, surely this sickness will not end in death. And so King Hezekiah is healed. And so there's this miraculous thing that takes place in King Hezekiah's life. One of the next things, though, that we see and that that we read is in time then, um, in in time, there's this envoy that visits uh, King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah uh, takes this envoy of this other ruling nation around, and he shows him around all of Jerusalem. He opens the doors to the treasury of the temple. He shows them all the riches. There's nothing that he doesn't show them. And this, this envoy was the envoy of Babylon. Babylon was this power that was on the rise at the time. And so in response to this, The Lord says to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, Days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Now what's important to note here is that the the books of Kings and Chronicles happen over the period of hundreds of years. And if you read these historical books, which are fascinating to read, most of the kings are royal screw-ups. Like, they're awful. Not, not many of them honor the Lord. Um, and so the judgment that's coming that is going to be brought about by Babylon is a result not of like, oh, I've messed up once, God forgive me, sorry about that. But it's over hundreds and hundreds of years where patterns and systems of, of evil and oppression and idolatry have, have developed. And so the Lord says, all these things, Babylon's going to carry off. Nothing's going to be left. This is how Hezekiah then responds. The same Hezekiah who wept before God, God save me, God saves him. And this is what he says. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, well, why not if there will be peace and security in my day? So he doesn't care what happens to the next generation, Right? As long as everything's cool in my generation, it's all good, no big deal. This is certainly not going to happen in my day. Hezekiah is like the nine lepers who walked away. So the story continues to move on, and throughout Jeremiah's uh, time as a prophet, the kings of Israel and Judah continued to try to find their security through political alliances and treaties and, and all these things. And, and the more alliances that they made, the more idol worship that came in uh, to the point of child sacrifice and all those kinds of things being a part, uh, being incorporated into the life of Israel. 
And these were things that happened, again, over centuries. This wasn't something that was just a once and done. It wasn't one or two bad things, but this was a pattern of faithlessness. Now, here's the fascinating passage, at least it is to me, in Jeremiah 21. This passage addresses two groups of people. It addresses the ruling class, so that would be like the the kings and also the priests and the prophets. So all all the leaders of the people, it addresses in one way. And then kind of the common person who is under the leadership of all of these leaders, it addresses in another way. Um, Hold on one second. So to the, the ruling class, King Zedekiah at the time, who's different than Hezekiah, which we just talked about. There's a lot of ayahs, so I wanted to make sure you differentiate. Um, so King Zedekiah at, at the time, he knows he's in a bind. Like Babylon is knocking at their door, and they're about to invade. And so this is King Zedekiah's words um, through somebody, uh, so he sent a messenger to Jeremiah. This messenger, I think his name is Peshur, um, was actually somebody who persecuted Jeremiah. And, and so the king, who has cared very little for God, sends this messenger who's persecuted the prophet, and he says, go ask Jeremiah this, please inquire the Lord on our behalf. Perhaps the Lord will do a wonderful deed for us, as he's often done, and will make Babylon withdraw from us. This is kind of the equivalent of saying, God, we've ignored you for absolute centuries. We've gotten into ourselves into a real bind here. Um, now, come do like you did in the past. So uh, this, this, this language of performing a mighty or a wonderful deed, this is, this is language of the, exi- or of the exodus, right? Through a strong arm and mighty hand, God would do these these things. Uh, after all this time of ignoring God, it's like, and, 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 you know, well, I won't even get into that. Keep moving on. So this is what the Lord replies to Jeremiah. I myself, and this is again in Exodus language. So Zedekiah is, is asking, please deliver us. And then in, again, Exodus language, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm. That was the same language that God used for Israel to fight against the Egyptians, but now it's going the other way because Israel has become Egypt. So for the ruling class who are treating God like a a last-ditch effort with zero sincerity, there is no mercy. God's just not like a magic potion that's going to come in and solve everything that you've been doing wrong for decades and centuries. Judgment is coming. Babylon is coming. This is the fruit of all of your injustice. But then, that's, that's to the ruling class. Right? Then we get to verse 8 through 10 in verse, uh, chapter 21. This is so cool, I think. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. And this is language of Deuteronomy 28. See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. In, order, in other words, you have a decision to make here. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and, I will, and he will destroy it with fire. In other words, commoner, Not leaders, but to the commoners, because the leaders have rejected this message forever. If you give yourselves to Babylon, to the enemy, you'll be saved. In fact, giving yourself to the enemy is an act of faith. An act of faith is not staying and fighting for the sake of nation and land, and being God's people. Isn't this, I find this amazing and confronting all at the same time. What is this act of faith and faithfulness? What's it look like for Judah to have faith at this 
time. It's to drop, <clears throat> to draw on the future reality of the reign of the kingdom of God and live faithfully in the present, meaning, meaning this, that their faith leads them to live faithfully in exile. Their faith leads them to live faithfully in exile. Just like in Deuteronomy 28, God is setting before them a way of life and death. For some, for some, they will reject the way of life. They will not surrender. They'll say, my faith is going to make me stay here and fight for this, this city because this city represents this temple. This temple represents that God is with us. We're the people of God, and I'll be darned if we're going to give up to these Babylonian pagan people. Right? And they're thinking that's an act of faith, but those are the people who are going to die. It's actually an act of faithlessness to do the same formula over and over again because it's worked in the past. Or the commoner has an opportunity to say, look, I believe that God has been faithful and this word of the Lord has come to us now. And so faithfulness will look like surrendering ourselves to Babylon because God's in Babylon too. If that's not cool to you, I mean, that's fine. I'm geeking out over here. Um, and and, and we'll, we'll tease this out in a little bit, but isn't it amazing, like, what you think would be faithful? Let's stay. Let's fight. Let's defend the nation. Let's defend God is actually an act of faithlessness. And what we see is the enemy, these pagan Babylonians, God forbid we give ourselves to them. Like letting yourselves be taken is actually the act of faith. That leads us to the passage that we read to start this whole deal off. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiled whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build your houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. All of these activities are long-term activities. In fact, one of the cool things, too, that happens in this passage of Scripture, I've used the word cool way too many times this morning, I'm sorry. Um, but one of the cool things that you see here is that Jeremiah will later identify that this is going to be about a period of 70 years. Do you know what 70 years is representative of in the Scripture? It's representative of the year of Jubilee where all the debts are forgiven, where everything is restored, and that is happening in Babylon. Holy moly. So do these long-term things. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. This is generational. Multiply there. Don't decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. To Judah, God is saying this, faith is not trusting me to deliver you through warfare, through the, the means that Joshua experienced or Moses experienced, not through that. Faith is not fighting for your religion. Faith is trusting that God is not only the God of Israel, but also the God of Babylon and the God of exile. There is life to be found in this land which I am carrying you because God is there. Jeremiah is telling them to settle in, plant vineyards that are going to take years to make any sort of good wine. Have children that are going to grow who then are going to have children or are going to marry off and have kids. Build houses because houses there weren't just like these individual family dwellings. They were extended family dwellings as well. Generations will inhabit this land and seek the welfare of the place that you're carried to. This is beautiful language, right? Seek the welfare of the city that you're being carried to. But it's super humbling. Why? Because these people, for the most part, don't go in like, oh, I'm just going to be middle-class citizens of Babylon now. They come in at the low end of the totem pole. They come in as the people who don't have any place within the society or the culture. 
They come in as refugees. They have no power. And it's so interesting because the very thing that Israel and Judah were, were judged for, the oppression of their own poor, are the very thing that they're called to be now. It's not that God's deliverance, this is so beautiful. God's deliverance for them is not just snapping and making everything better, but it's transforming them as a people. You've been the oppressor, now learn what it is to be oppressed. Let that change happen in your heart as you recognize what you have done to other people. Let God free you from becoming Egypt again. Before I return you to the land that I've promised you, let Egypt work itself out again. This is how God works, y'all. It's not these neat and tiny little boxes, well, we're just going to defend Jerusalem, and that's going to be what faithfulness to God looks like. No, it's going to be repentance that I have messed up, I have been the oppressor, and I need to learn what it means to be freed from being the oppressor. So let's spend a few minutes thinking about the church in America as exiled followers of Jesus in America. As you and I make our home in this strange nation as citizens of the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns. A bit of differentiation. The church in America is different than the American church. The church in America is a transnational body of believers that happens to find themselves in this land. The American church is in and of itself uh, a religion that shapes, crea- uh, that, that shapes Christianity through the values and the idolatry of the nation state, America. We must differentiate those two things. They're completely different. Now, the American church, and you all might have at some points encountered this kind of theology, the American church has a misguided concept as Amer- as, of America as a sort of new Israel. Some think America is a new Israel, and so they want to make America, and they also have this uh, sense that America was a Christian nation, and so the goal of the church then is to make America a Christian nation. Again, this is why so many people, and we're seeing this uh, rise uh, in, in our time right now, this is why there's so much rise of Christian nationalism right now, because there is no separation between the two. They think as they are Christians, they are to stand against all the pagan forces of the culture in order to return America to a Christian nation. I want to say that again because it's important. They think their responsibility, their mission as Christians is to stand against all the pagan forces of the culture in order to return America to being a Christian nation. This is why the mission of so many churches and so many Christians is to fight culture wars. I don't think we can read or hear Jeremiah without hearing the implications for the American church that critiques this posture that we have to somehow defend our faith. Where on earth do you get that? The cruciformity of Christianity, within it, there there is no defense of faith. There is crucifixion. There is suffering. We're not to be at home in this land or this world. Friends, we're exiles. That is like our status. You don't get anything better than that. For those of you who are looking to make a home or make this nation, a Christian nation again, friends, it's a, it's a lost cause because that's, that's not what God's about. You're missing the point that America is actually Babylon. Let that sink in. Instead of returning America to being a Christian nation, which it never was, and we can have that argument over coffee or steak sometime, it never was. America is a Babylon just like any other ruling nation state. Babylon historically in the Bible is a historic nation with historic rule at historic time, but then you read in the book of Revelation, it's also representative of every power and nation state that oppresses and does evil. And so, 
friends, our, our, our job isn't, uh, I got to watch my language here. Um, I wasn't going to curse. There was just other things. That, Um, our, our, our job isn't to fight Christianity in the context of America is kind of sad because it's not it, it, it's not um, It doesn't want to suffer. We saw this throughout COVID, right? Don't make me suffer. I've got the right to meet. By God, I'm going to meet. We don't, we don't want to suffer. And, and for, or for one side of the Christian spectrum, that means trying to um, codify into law everything that is Christian. And for the other side of the spectrum, that, that means just leave me do my own thing. I, I don't have any accountability whatsoever. I can form my own sort of faith and religion. And that religion is not going to be based on suffering, friends. Like, this side wants safety and security. This side just wants you to leave it alone. Like, don't mess with me. I'll make my own, I'll, I'll create my own faith and religion to make me feel good because, because suffering is just not part of who I am. Both sides do not want the cross. Conservative, liberal, progressive, whatever you want to call it. The cross critiques both of them. Friends, we live in Babylon. It's never going to get any better than that. Okay? But... There's good news. Like, there's work for you to do in Babylon. And the, the other part of the good news is, God's in Babylon. God's here. Not to make this Babylon a Christian place, but so that the seeds that are a part of each one of your lives bear some fruit of the kingdom. So I wonder, as you think about what it means to have faith in this day and this age, what does that look like to you? Does that mean you've got to fight to make sure the Supreme Court does everything right in a Christian sense? I'm going to lose my job after this message. Or is it, I mean, do you realize that just the way that we've went about things, we've done it in the spirit of Egypt. We've done it as the oppressors. We've done it, uh, you're sinners, you're going to hell, you're making the wrong, you're out, you're in. Where's that gotten us? The counterintuitive of the cross, <laughs> this, this ultimate place where, where heaven and earth kiss, um, says to us that, you know what, God is even there. God is even there, crucified. God, by all the world's stretch of the imagination, God lost. God can't put up a fight. God refuses to say anything. I think the good news is that God is in Babylon too. That God is on the cross in the place where God should not be. And I think it takes faith to be able to see that. I just want to give us a few moments of just quiet as we ready ourselves for 
the table and to receive the table this morning. invite you to close your eyes and have your own space. I don't even quite know how to guide this time of prayer, but just, I would say, allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak what the Spirit needs to speak to you. Maybe it's word of correction. Maybe a word of correction, maybe a word of encouragement. Let's just spend some space here. Lord Jesus, uh, free us. Free us from uh, a model or a vision of, of what has been called faith that must defend and fight for God. We've seen throughout scripture and crusade and everything else, Lord, that is just not the way of Jesus. Free us from that and free us into faith that is able to see that you are in Babylon and that you are with us there. Help us to be these people of the kingdom that Jeremiah describes, who plant and build and have families and stake their hope, not in their position in society, but their hope that God is present with them where they are. Would you join me in, in just praying this kingdom prayer that Jesus gives us as we prepare for the table this morning?